Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%, that impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. My name is Reed Wildermuth. I am the author of Here Be Monsters, How to Fight Capitalism Instead of Each Other. I've been a writer for quite some time. I was an activist for a much longer period than that. And I live in Luxembourg after 40 years of being in the United States. One of the things that made me chuckle in the book was the thing about a flatmate in your request to ask them to do washing up that you were oppressing them. Oh, yes. <laughs> and oh, yes. I think we've all had those kind of run-ins with the flatmates around well, chores. The, the joke was always, too, that when you live in an anarchist commune, you, you need to find a... Uh, a socialist or a Marxist to do the dishes for you because no one else does, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fascinating in some ways, like reading this book, that there is uh, a critique or a sort of perspective of some maybe sacred cows, if that's the right term, around sure. yeah. around sort of social justice identity frameworks, if, if again, if that's the right way of phrasing it. Was there like a moment for you, like the washing up thing, or was it like a, a series of moments that made you sort of step back on some of this stuff because obviously from reading the book you have been heavily involved in a lot of kind of political projects throughout your life were there any sort of triggering <laughs> that's probably the wrong term but you know yeah. instigating moments i'm not sure if there was any one moment there there were definitely several moments cascading on top of each other that that kind of showed me hey something's really wrong here i'll tell you actually one moment that i remember very vividly, which was a, it was an organizer that I worked with who I thought she was an absolutely brilliant person. She was a Marxist. She was one of those people who could just really talk to anyone. But it turned out that was a problem when she would write and when she would speak about being able to talk to people who were supposedly on the right, deplorables, as it were, in the United States, people would get very angry with her and tell her that she was a traitor. Now, she was a communist and a Marxist, and also she was trans. And the majority of the criticism that forced her to just stop organizing altogether was from other trans people. They were saying that she should not be talking to her transphobic neighbor who won't use her correct pronouns, so therefore this person should not be someone you attempt to organize. And of course, the organization she was trying to do was you know, rent strikes, getting better living conditions uh, within apartments, very material conditions. But her identity became a, she was detranced, as it were, in the arguments and the cancellations. She wasn't trans enough for other people because she was not acting the way that people should, which for them was, no, you don't talk to those people. No, you do not organize with those people. And her point 
And, and I think it's a very larger point altogether. And something that I mentioned at the end of the book is that you will never be able to change people's minds. You will never be able to really accomplish anything if you start out saying, no, I do not talk to these people. Marxism, leftism in general, for a very long time has always been about organizing around shared material conditions and shared struggle. And what seemed to be happening slowly, I think, for the first 10 years that I was an activist, but increasingly after Occupy, was that material conditions didn't matter anymore. What mattered was identity. But even with an identity, there were contradictions where you were not allowed to speak on behalf of an identity, even if that was your identity, because you did not have the correct opinions. And that, that I think, was one of the biggest moments that stuck out for me, watching the way that we were fighting each other instead of fighting capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating because there is absolutely this element of persuasion, maybe in all of this, because you could say that the sort of identity politics, and perhaps that needs to be defined, has ultimately become pervasive and more persuasive to most people than a class-based framework or analysis. And I guess there's probably plenty of reasons why that has happened. Um, But do you have a working definition of, if we're going to talk about identity politics, like what that is to you or what that means to other people? Yeah, so I, I use the word identitarianism in the book as opposed to identity politics. And, and that's a controversial thing to do because, of course, we usually talk about identitarianism on the right, nationalist identitarianism, religious identitarianism, etc. But I think what, for what is called identity politics, and, and I avoid using the word woke or anything else like that because that's a slippery term that, that doesn't really mean anything and means everything depending on who you're talking to. So it's, it's a useless word right now. Uh, but I think what has happened is that there's a prioritization on identity um, and organizing around that or feeling that the reason why you are in poor situations, difficult situations, especially if your material conditions are not good, is on account of your identity and primarily on account of your identity. Whereas left used to talk about capitalism. And within Marxism, within communism, and within anarchism for a long time, there was always an additional narrative about the way that capitalism uses identity to separate the the working class or the, the lower classes so that they do not um, organize together. But what's happened now is we've forgotten that, and instead we are constantly struggling to create social change, but not economic change, uh, social change based on identity. But that also doesn't work as well. I, I bring up in the book how the idea that you should be able to, or that a politically active radical should prioritize their identity over other things leads us to strange situations where For example, let's pick Barack Obama. He was the first black slash mixed race president of the United States. Huge, massive change. But of course, he was quite capitalist and and there was nothing socialist about him. 
And the idea that the lower classes should say he is on our side because he has the same skin color as us turned out to be, you know, quite a failure. Uh, a lot of people very quickly noticed, hey, nothing is changing on, under this. And so that, I think, that's not quite an, a definition of identitarianism or identity politics, but that's one example of how we've gotten ourselves into very difficult contradictory ideological mass. Yeah, and very much highlighted by the, is it Goldman Sachs? Yes, Goldman Sachs, the CIA, the F, or the U.S. military, they, they've all really quite adapted and they rather love the language of identity right now. Um, there is an argument to be made, I know many people have made it, that, that this is merely elite capture, as it were. I argue otherwise in the book. But yeah, that's definitely part of the, the issue we're in. The Golden Sachs statement was basically very much a, a piece about, of course, we want a sort of diverse workforce, blah, 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 blah. That's all good stuff. But the thing that's not said is like that the game stays the same. The, the players might look different, but the nothing has actually changed except for maybe a handful of individuals and great for them. That's all good. That is some sort of progress, <laughs> but it's not like systemic progress as it were. Yeah, um, certainly. And, and if you look at, so for example, the housing crisis in the United States, 2008, 2009, a lot of my neighbors who were black in Seattle lost their homes because of the basically predatory lending practices of those banks. And Goldman Sachs profited incredibly off of this. And they were one of the engineers of this entire scheme. And suddenly they get all of this property that had been previously owned by black people. And then they turn around and say, hey, we care about black people. Let's no, you, you don't. You just ruined a lot of people's lives. But it's quite pretty for them to say that and also quite sinister. It's very much the same around Obama who was the same thing, colored in brown, and who decided to solve the mortgage crisis by giving money to the banks with no strings attached and abandoning the subprime lenders who were mainly people of color. But in the United States, I don't know what happened in Britain, but in the United States in the 1970s, there was something called the Great Wurlitzer. It's written up in a book called The Great Wurlitzer, and it's about the massive amounts of money given by the CIA and FBI to agents like Gloria Steinem to push the women's movement, those tendencies to make it gender only an excise class, and for the black movement, the civil rights movement, to make it black power instead of civil rights, so that the potential class-based left was dismembered. And that's where you quote in your book, you talk about Adolf Reed, who saw that. Although I don't mm -hmm. know if you knew the particulars about the CIA and FBI's successful interventions. I certainly do as an early feminist before Gloria Steinem and then seeing how that went. But I think that in a capitalist system, there's always room at the top. You can adjust but you can't adjust the class system. You can do symbolic things, and you can include people in the class 
order as is, but you cannot change the class order as is. I, I'm really glad you brought that up. I don't write specifically about this in the book. I recently wrote an essay about the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was the predecessor of those programs that you were just talking about. That was the CIA funding leftist groups specifically to turn them away from the Soviet Union and communism and in general. There's an amazing book written by a British historian named Francis Stone Saunders. And the book is called Who Paid the Piper? Um, and of course, we see the continuation with that uh, even later, the, the Gloria Steinem problem, etc. It seems a little conspiratorial not to think that this is still happening. It's oftentimes it sounds like conspiracy, but when you step back and you ask yourself, what would benefit the capitalist governments of the world more? Then you very clearly see, hey, it's much better to have the poor fighting each other over, over identity than it is for them ever to say, hey, you know what? I, I don't necessarily like you, but I want to fight together with you to make our lives better. And that's, I think, the most dangerous thing for them which is why it seems like they're encouraging us to never talk about class any longer. Yes, I think they are. And I think if we look at successful revolutionary movements lately, whether it's winning in Chile or whether it's the abortion victory in Argentina, these are victories of the indigenous people uniting with feminists, uniting with racial movements uniting with progressive labor movements and sexual freedom movements because then you actually have a chance to win. Otherwise, you don't. I like to see it as a kind of umbrella with a post-being-class conscious socialist redistribution and reallocation and revision of the way labor works. And all the panels of that umbrella being sexual rights, feminist rights, black rights, indigenous rights, and abortion rights, and everything else. Yeah, but absolutely. without that class component, you won't win, because that's what everybody has in common. Mm-hmm. I think, too, the United States has not seen many large, very diverse moments movements since the anti-globalization protests. I I write about that in the book a bit, but WTO, at least for me, was the very last time that I remember seeing people who you would never imagine being together otherwise. But of course, that was the idea. It was a another world is possible. Look at all of these different groups. Here's some people wearing turtle costumes. Here's some (laughs) kind of stodgy communists and and some unionists. Here are the anarchists. Here's the people from South America who are visiting. Here are the people from Africa. I remember there being, for a year or two after that as well, it was normal to be hearing a feminist from India speaking alongside a communist from Nigeria in Seattle. That, that was, when does that kind of, for me, that, that's what was originally meant or what should have been meant by intersectionality. But what's happened yes, instead uh, is... It's not been working that way any longer. No, your book is certainly uh, excellent on revealing that. I think the Occupy movement in the United States 
had elements of that. Yes. One thing I'd also mention is that there were lots of people who had not been politicized before. The, my experience in, in Occupy Seattle was that I was constantly seeing people who, you know, hey, I, I just got angry. What do I do? And it's that's if many of those people, if you were to look at them from a radical milieu, as it were, from all of the aesthetics of, of anarchism or leftism in general, you'd say, oh, no, you don't belong here. But it's, hey, if we push them out because they don't look like us, or if we push them out because they don't know the right lingo, they don't know the right jargon, they don't know the right things to say, you can never build a movement. Part of that, I think, is the emphasis went from winning class justice for everyone to being your Puerto Rican, Black, lesbian, whatever, self. One of the major things, I think, about ultimately all these different interests in some ways colliding and trying to make a class organization in a certain way, some of the difficulties, I think, given like any population, any population is not a homogenous population for one. It's very diverse Mm. in itself, right? And oftentimes, a lot of the anxieties around these groups end up being that any kind of policy on paper is worthless unless it's enforced. And no policy has ever been enforced for people like us. Right. And yeah, that's some of the anxieties around a lot of the class based organizations. Right. And unless if you can actually answer those questions and address those issues, you have a very difficult time getting a buy in from people. Right. Sure. So, for example, Medicare for all is a great idea, but we have a huge swath of the population that has had such negative experiences with doctors and the medical infrastructure that just getting access to them is no, I'm still going to get treated like shit as a poor person <laughs> by the doctors and the sure. nurses. And unless you address some of those issues, they're just like, why would I want access to more shitty treatment? Mm. I've heard that quite a lot from a lot of people. And that's some of the issues around the distrust in medicine that we see and the distrust in infrastructures and social institutions in general is resulting from whether it's education, whether it's social services, like the people on the receiving end are like, we have a horrible experience with this. Sure. I would say a couple of things on that. Uh, First of all, you bring up a very good point about the, it's hard to get buy-in if, especially if you are talking from an academic perspective or if you're using all of the technical words. It's nice, like primitive accumulation is a great idea, but trying to explain that to somebody who's like, hey, I just need to pay my rent this month. What do I do? I think the left in general had lost focus on material conditions and being real with people even before the shift to identity politics. And a second thing I think 
I'll say the most successful organization I've ever seen in the United States um, is, is called Seesaw. It's, there are many versions of this in several cities, but it's the IWW, and they organize rent strikes, or it's a solidarity network, basically, where you tell some, or you tell them if you are getting screwed over by your landlord, and then they'll help you get, they'll, they'll help you fix that. And if the landlord doesn't listen, suddenly 40 or 50 people who are all part of this organization show up to the landlord's house and say, hey, why are you not giving this person their deposit back, et cetera. And that organization is made up primarily of people who have already been helped by it. And when you look at the crowd, and I haven't been in Seattle for seven years now, and I was last involved with them about eight years ago. I remember then looking at, wow, this is truly what, this is truly what diversity looks like. And we're all working specifically for each other's material conditions. And you don't see much of that any longer. I lived in the United States until I was 40. And then I moved to France for a few years. And now I live in Luxembourg. And it struck me immediately the first year I was in France, wait, all of the prote protesters here have healthcare. They all have chômage, like they, they all are being taken care of. And that initially made me very angry about the American situation and what I had gone through and what all of my friends had gone through. I, I hadn't been to a dentist in 20 years. Um, I hadn't been to a doctor in 10 years because I couldn't afford it there. And then looking at all of these people here in, or there in France, just having this as a matter of course, it made me initially angry and then it made me profoundly sad. Because then I realized there's so little, no, we don't, you, we don't have the imagination in the United States, the feeling that this is possible. And that's a great thing of sadness. It's tragic that people don't know what a union can do any longer. And there's a tendency to get angry at people who are reticent about unions or whatever. And it's, hey, you cannot fault them. They have not seen what they can do. And the situation in the United States has been quite well, American awful. Unions, American unions can be rather authoritarian and not necessarily in the best interest of their rank and file for political reasons of decades in the making, It's specifically in this country. But yeah, ultimately, I remember talking to a French I believe he was an aerospace worker or airline, one of the two, I can't remember, but he was talking about why the French, I was just like, oh, you guys are exemplary in, in some of your protesting. And he was just like, oh yeah, we have really good healthcare and we have a decent welfare system and you know, certain protections that actually allow us to protest. Communism was not as crushed and neither was socialism after World War II, because the communists were the head of the resistance. So it was hard to throw them out. Plus, with Marshall Fund money, they kicked all, it was a prerequisite, they kicked all the communists and left people out of the academic world. So they went into the unions. Wow. Whereas our unions were anti-communist and kicked out the leftists and with them the spark of, of knowledge that right. we could do it all. Though. So we have a particular 
crippling history. It is fascinating. If the picture that's being painted here is of a sort of divide and conquer, divide and rule thing that's happened, and the identitarian framework, if that's the right term, has been used and abused by corporations. And like you said, the CIA's advert is fairly notorious. Then military as well. So it's that in then critiquing some of this stuff, which you do in your book, it feels bizarrely dangerous. (laughs) I remember somebody I can't remember where, where it was, but it was some video where some student had spoken, and it may be to do with the evergreen uh, college situation that you mentioned in the book, that they ultimately felt silence was safer because they didn't want to be labeled as anything bad. So just by keeping quiet and keeping their head down, they didn't have to get involved in the sort of political situation that was going on there, or just generally in society, like no one really wants to be called a fascist or or anything negative, really. I think there's an element in reading this book, and particularly because it's spicy, right? Here be monsters. (laughs) How has it been, like you said, the book is about to be released, so I guess you don't know what the the reaction is going to be to this. But have you felt any sort of like pressure to not write about this stuff, right? Because, and maybe I'm straw manning some of the identitarian stuff, right? But here's my understanding of it, and you tell me if I'm not being fair, right? That as a, myself, as a white, cisgendered, able-bodied, heterosexual male, I am the apex problem, maybe, to some degree. The apex oppressor, as as I put it. Right, but... If my landlord was the inverse of all of those things, that I would still be the oppressor because of my identity category and the the resources that potentially are available to me. That, I think, is probably the most succinct way to put the problem, where I remember when I I remember getting into an argument with somebody and and then I just pulled out of the argument because it was just it was really wild where someone was explaining how a cisgendered, white, heterosexual, able-bodied, homeless male could be an oppressor to a female CEO. And it just, it, it made no sense any longer, but within that framework, it does. You asked if there was some reticence or, or what have you. I don't think I could have written this book if I had not been asked to write it. A repeater had asked me to write it. And even initially, I wanted to say no. Because once I'd left the United States, of course, I was still connected to some of these things through social media. And then I gave up on social media because it was just too much. And I was able to, I guess, find some sort of peace of mind. Like I I had been labeled all kinds of things. But then again, anybody will be labeled these things. It doesn't matter. And yes, there has already been some anger about this book coming out. Uh, it, very often, the, the criticism is, why is Repeater publishing Reed Wildermuth? And, and, and those people haven't read the book yet. You learn that the negative criticism is, it, it just comes with whatever you're doing. And also, it, it does tend to help in the long run, because... A lot of the people that I've, I, I was told are very bad people you should never listen to ever 
back when I was very into the whole social justice framework, I would go read what it was that they were saying to experience the hate I was supposed to experience. And then suddenly realize, wait, that's not what they said at all. Yeah. So that, I guess the book is, it, it comes out tomorrow, which I'm not sure when this will actually be aired. Probably it's already out. A yep. lot of pre-orders have actually already been shipped and I've been hearing from people who have already read it that they love it. So that's what matters to me. It's yeah. fascinating, right? Because the conclusion, it's not a spoiler, it's just a good thing, <laughs> is that you're talking about that sort of part of the kind of everyday way through all of this stuff is friends, right? Like friends are not necessarily, as you said, perhaps in the past you had friendship groups that actually more resembled gangs. Ideological than, gangs. Yeah. And that friendship can be a kind of, maybe a, not only good for you, but also subversive, but also challenging, right? Because the, the best friends aren't the ones that necessarily agree with you or want you to hate or like the same people. And I thought that was a, just a really, maybe a pleasant way to end the book and maybe pleasantry isn't a good thing, but I thought it was interesting given that by definition, some people are going to be very hostile to it, but I thought there was a pleasant or soft way to end it. Well, I think actually, I definitely appreciate that, but I mean it in a more powerful way than just a pleasantry because so before I left the United States, this was in 2016. I remember the social media atmosphere with the run-up to the election of Trump. And of course, at that point, people didn't realize Trump was going to win. Some of us did. I, I was certain Trump was going to win. And I remember listening to people, oh, no, that will never happen. And so, wait, have you talked to people? Have you actually been outside of Facebook? But what happened during that period and then a little bit afterwards was there was a lot of social media posts explaining, telling, cajoling, demanding that if you had friends who voted for Trump or if you had friends who did not vote for Hillary Clinton, because there were other candidates in that election as well, or if you had friends who didn't vote, you should not be their friends. You should stop talking to those people. Those people are the enemy. Those people are evil. Those people want me dead. They want to genocide entire groups of people, etc. And I know a lot of people actually did do that. I think what happened was a lot of people felt this pressure or just were so angry and so traumatized during that entire moment that they said, hey, you know what? You are not my friend anymore because you disagree with me and I cannot be your friend any longer. And that is precisely the opposite of any strategy for building any sort of collective power movement. You don't right. cut people off because they have different opinions. You cannot change their minds. You cannot show them. You cannot explain. As, like in the story that I was telling at the beginning about, about my organizer friend, part of, and this isn't why she did it, but she was a trans communist organizer who was organizing with people who had no idea even what trans was or they didn't like trans or whatever. But then they still said, oh, but you're going to help me fight my landlord? Okay, sure. I, and maybe later on, I, we can talk about this. But her point was, no, you, you build these friendships, you build these relationships on what can be done and what is most important. And the rest of it will follow or it won't. But still cutting everybody else off 
ending your friendships or refusing to make new friendships with people because you have these ideas or you've been told, no, I cannot talk to someone because they do not believe X. If you take it out of politics and you put it into religion, which Marx saw theology as the highest, most complex form of ideology. So in essence, it is a politics. But if you think of it that way, where it's like, I don't talk to people who are Muslim, or I do not talk to people who are Christian, or I do not talk to Christians of this denomination because they are, you know, of the devil or they're wrong. It, it's the same thing. It's the same constantly splintering, constantly fighting, constantly being fearful of each other. And friendship, I believe, is the only solution to that. It's the only cure for that. I'm not saying that you should go run out and find a fascist and be friends with him or her. But what I'm saying is maybe someone that you don't agree with actually has a lot more in common with you than you think. And maybe you can build something together. One of the things that used to keep the left from spinning off like this is a big influx of progressive unionists who are much more rooted in winning. And that has not happened for a long time. It's happening again in the United States. But I could see that also that unity and that acceptance of difference. There's this sense of keeping your eyes on the prize, which they have in unions. And in friendship, it's the prize is the connection mm -hmm. that is lost in these arcane splinters of people who think they're left. Yeah, I, I would say, too, that there's a, the far right, the extremist right, or what have you, whatever you want to call it, they spend a lot of time telling people that another group is their enemy. That's what we know them for. That's what we've always known them for. That's the project of fascism itself is picking small groups of people, scapegoating them, and then throwing them into camps. And if the right operates on division um, by declaring some group an enemy or another, we need to do something different than that. And I'm not saying that we are like them, but what I'm saying is we've seen how that tactic works and, and how that ends. We, yeah. we don't want a world where one group of people is the enemy that no one can talk to anymore. We want a group or we want a world where there are no enemies, where there's not some group of people identified by their skin color or their gender or their sexuality or, or whatever. We, we don't want them ostracized because of their difference. And again, I'd, I'd go back to the point of friendship, but, but friendship is one of the primary ways that we learn how to see past the ideological differences towards something greater. Potentially, that's a sort of nice way to wrap things up. <laughs> but I just feel amiss if we didn't maybe go talk about some of these monsters or why you chose the title or the framing for the book. Ah, yes. So the title actually comes from an essay that I had written before I was asked to write the book with the idea of there are places, it's a bit like the here be dragons or there be dragons. Like there are places that you need to be careful of. You can't go in those places because it's the unknown or it's dangerous. And of course, 
I guess that's what I did with the book. I, I went into the places that are supposed to be dangerous. But then, you know, when I was writing it and when I was thinking about it, and I realized, no, actually, it's easy to understand these things. These things arise, these ideological knots, as it were, just like monsters arise. They arise in the ancient world to point out that there's some imbalance, there's some problem that needs to be addressed. I open with the etymology of the word monster, which comes from the Latin word that means to show. A monster was a, something that showed, something that warned, something that alerted you that there was a problem. And then so with the framework with the monsters, I, I found that, I found those four uh, as a good way to hang the, or as something good to hang up our ideological knots on. For example, the cyborg, which Donna Haraway did not actually come up with a cyborg. She's just famous for writing a cyborg manifesto. The cyborg arose right at a moment when humans were grappling with the fact that we were changing our bodies through machines not just through medicine, but also literal machines with ways to extend our life, ways to have dialysis, all of these things. And that was the moment when people were struggling, especially feminists were struggling on what does it mean to be a feminist if there are all of these multiple other ways of being feminist? And then what does it mean to be even human if we can also be hybrid, if we can be part machine or part something else? And then with the other monsters, the, I, I use the zombie explains something that I think is pretty much at the root of a lot of our identity issues in the West, which is that we've inherited a Christian legacy that believes that there is only one true self, the, the soul or the mind that is the real you and the body is just a shell that you're living in. Whereas animist cultures have the sense of there being multiple selves and that the body, the body soul, as it's often called, or, and also the wandering soul or the other souls that people have are all companions to each other so that you cannot be reduced to one thing. You're not just your body. You're not just your soul. You are multiple things. And I use the vampire to discuss the problem of resentment, which I found studying resentment and thinking about resentment a lot as a really powerful way of understanding why there was so much anger and so much lack of agency in the left or in the identitarian left. And then finally, with the werewolf, I use that to talk about the, both to talk about fascism, but also to talk about the things outside of our boundaries, because werewolves within European thought and even earlier were often, often men living in far from the villages, far from the cities, people who had one foot in nature and one foot in the village or the city, the companion or the mirror image of the cyborg. I particularly liked the zombie stuff that this idea of you can't be reduced to just one identity or one thing it seems to come up maybe in the conversations that have been had on this podcast that there are multiple versions of you competing for different things out of life and it's paying attention to all these different pulling and pushing that happens and i thought that was fascinating because it works on this 
individual level when it works on a sort of a, a, a the social level, right? Like even as you say, the intersectional lens on stuff never really encompasses all the different uh, identities yeah. that you have and that you are. But again, I guess maybe that's a whole other podcast. Because it's very, it's important because in the psych field, when you talk about people having multiples, it means they're crazy. It means that they have disassociated, dissociated. There's something wrong with them. There's something seriously wrong with them. Multiple personality or dissociated dissociation disorder. It doesn't really encompass and then find your true self, find your whatever, rather than find the, the people with whom you feel good, because we're different depending on all the people with whom we interact, because different parts of ourselves are brought out, and we have so many. But having connection with other selves does get a bad rap in psychology. Circling kind of back to the friendship aspect that ultimately one of the biggest issues I see as somebody that has done some work with policy and also work with people is that a lot of times what the biggest mistake that most people make is to see someone and assume you already know. Right. Like an essentialism kind of thing. You're this, you're that. You check these boxes, so you must be this person. And ultimately, most people are a product of their environment. They are a product of their experiences. Genetics do have some play in these things. But we are a complicated mixture of influences. And one of the things that I always try to remember, because if you are a good counselor, you should not be choosing your clients on agreement. Right. Right. That you are going to find people sitting across from you that may have diametrically opposite views. Uh, But ultimately, one of the major things is that I always try to remember is that the vast majority of people do not actually pick their beliefs or politics. Mm. 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 It's their friends, it's their family, it's an invisible thing. And some people do, I'm not, but a huge number of people don't. A lot is also like a huge number of people temporarily rebel and then go back because there's a lot of social factors. A lot of times people treat politics and ideology like these are just facts. You're either a factual person or you're not, right? So you either don't mind being wrong or bad. Or you're a good right person, but ideology and politics are highly social ultimately. Mm, mm. A lot of times, changing somebody's ideology, changing somebody's politics, in many ways, you are asking, you are potentially creating divides in some of their most important relationships. Yeah, I, I would also add too, like back with the idea of the multiple selves and or us not being able to be reduced to one thing. If you believe that there's a true self that is a static, essential thing, then you cannot change your mind. Right. But if you give people the chance to not be at war with themselves and instead say, oh, I don't feel this way anymore. Huh, that's strange. I guess if, I guess I've changed my opinion on X issue. 
And that requires a lot more, I want to say love and compassion, or at least a, a sense of benevolent indifference where you just say, okay, you might change your mind on this later. And I'm not going to hold you to your opinion now because we all change because we're all multiple things. Yes. I think that's important because the, shall we say in quotes, the pure, and I really found this dealing with people with dissociative, excuse me, identity disorder is to have them make friends with their different selves and bring them in. That's what, that you integrate, that you can be the rageful, angry person, and you can be the one who laughs at everyone, and you can be the obedient one, and you're oh. all of them, and that's okay. Yeah, what if, what if your authentic self is a dick? You know, you, you have to you integrate have to that, right? Well, I mean, yeah, your authentic self can be a bit of a troll. Right. Sure. People are a huge multitude of the result of very different influences. And a lot of times, I think one of the aspects of what prevents a lot of change in people is that a lot of people want too much credit mm. for the change, like right. other people, right? I helped you change. And ultimately, change is something that the person often does themselves they do the hardest part of the lifting yes right the only thing that i generally do whenever people are just like oh you helped me change that was like not really i just asked you questions and i wanted to understand where you were coming from i want to know the history of like how you ended up here how your behavior ended up here how your thinking ended up here and try to piece together a puzzle that's so beautiful. Because we are these many pieces that do fit together, right? And a lot of times people don't understand how they fit together, or that they're trying to fit the wrong piece into the wrong, another wrong piece when they just have to fit it into the right piece, right? So ultimately, yeah, the biggest thing is about friendship is not just agreement, but a desire to understand why and where people come from. What and a desire to open yourself to their questions. Right. And their conditions and their contexts. And in that sense, I think the one thing that is really important is talking to somebody that is as powerless as you are ultimately. You should be more patient towards those people, right? Your bosses may be less. (laughs) that that there is a huge power differential. And it's also important to a certain degree to understand that I often have conversations with Liam's about humans of defaulting towards expedience. But one of the most important things that you can do in a relationship and where myself and most human beings will fail is that power differential doesn't necessarily fall on easily understood lines. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying is very much reflected in art. The way people paint people, they paint them as if the boundaries are there rather than showing all these other people growing out of them. They're presented as a unified totality. And even someone like Picasso 
who shows you the image of someone as seen by different angles all at the same time. It's not like there's all these different people there who need expression and who want to grow out of the same human. That's one of the things about making friends is the power struggle among peers that don't have these clearly delineated categories like landlord, tenant, boss, employee. And a lot of times in those types of relationships, people tend to want to default towards the most expedient understanding. And that's oftentimes where things really fracture, right? That's where you stop hearing each other. That's right, because the most expedient is often the most self-justifying. Right. Mm. And that's too bad. Even in that wonderful analogy you made, Ekoi, the puzzle piece fits into another piece in one area, but there's lots of pieces it has to fit into to go into the puzzle. Right. Reed, did you want to respond to anything Ekoi Herrick was saying before well, we close it? I thought that was all quite brilliant. I, I was thinking particularly with not every, or with identity not fitting into these categories or whatever, like thinking about the experience of France and not modern France, but much older, when you look at some of the early revolts, very often you see groups of people that you would expect to have been in complete opposition with each other fighting together. And that was often from friendship. For instance, restaurant owners were convinced by the people working in the restaurant to take the side of weavers who were striking in Lille. That is a network of friendship. But if they had said, oh, no, we don't talk to restaurant owners because they are owners, then that, that would not have happened. So, yeah, yeah I, by the way, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed this. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, Thomas Stewart, Felicity, Abby, Naked Joe, Joseph Carreri, E, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Inter- personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.